Hello again, and welcome to another episode of The Goat Farm, episode nine. Today we have Brian O'Connell. Uh, Brian's with IBM. Brian's going to talk to us about the work that he does to serve up, uh, no pun intended, uh, most of the Grand Slam <laughs> major websites, um, as well as some other websites like IBM.com. And there was another one that uh, you told me, Brian, and I completely forgot. What was the other one? Um, we, we handle uh, the Tony Awards. Uh, the um, Tony Awards them. as well. Yes. Uh, so this conversation should be really, really interesting about impact uh, uh, websites that really kind of impact millions of people for, uh, you know, short periods of time. Uh, with me, as always, is Ross. Hello, Ross. Hi. So, How's Ross, how are things with you? Things are going well with me. Thanks for asking. <laughs> Welcome back to the U.S. Yes, I'm back in the U.S. Uh, I'm glad to be back, but I'm only back for about another week, and then I get to head over to Germany, which I'm actually looking forward to. It's I haven't been to – in all my travels, Germany is one of the places that I haven't been very much. I've only been twice. So I'm oh. excited to get uh, a little bit more time over there and kind of exploring things there. Very cool. I assume that'll be like another three-month uh, hiatus in Europe or just a short trip. Well, uh, according to uh, you know immigration for uh, Europe, we don't actually want to talk about how much time I was over there. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, no, it's not. A, it's just for five days. So it's a short cool. period. Yeah. And then I'm back in the U.S. Awesome. So, yeah, I actually have a topic I've been, I've been thinking about recently. I figured we could chat about real quick before we get into the show today. So I've had a few folks talk to me recently kind of expressing concern in the community that we've been getting. We've been getting like maybe too much into the, I think it was referred to me as like the sad DevOps like rhetoric or, 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 or messaging that's out there. So you mean and, we as in uh, you and I on the podcast or you mean we as in the community? We as in the broader community. And um, me being the culture guy, usually I tend to emphasize DevOps culture over, over even the practices. Uh, it was interesting hearing this, and largely when I dug into it, 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 it the, the messaging was, wow, it feels like we're really kind of over-indexing. They're starting to get a lot of topics lately on, on, on really heavy on the culture, like on you know everyone being introverts and the empathy topic and... More and more of that seems to be what what people are hearing lately, and and for me, I actually have tended to appreciate those topics because, again, I, I like like to focus in on the culture. But our, you know, when hearing from some of our technologists that 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 kind of brought some of this up to me, kind of felt you know they're frustrated that it they felt like it's kind of pulling the conversation away from the core core practices and the core kind of agenda that DevOps is really about on, on changing our, our technology practices and how we work. I'm kind of curious what you've heard about that, like either the the sad DevOps, and it was actually referenced to me as the sad DevOps, so the empathy and the introversion, and here's all these things that, that make all of us different. Sad um, ops, if you will. Yeah, sad ops. I also feel like we've done a, personally I've seen us, you know, a lot of emphasis on some of the kind of cutesy DevOps topics too, like DevOps Princess and Yak Shaving and all that stuff too. What what's your take on all that messaging and, and is it is it detracting from where we need to be focused? Is it is it engaging the community? Like what what's your view on it? So that's actually really interesting. So uh, first off I would say that things are cyclical. So we've had this conversation in the DevOps community in the past and Part of the criticism of DevOps days in the past has been, and by the past, I mean maybe two and a half years ago or so, or maybe even three years ago, there were conversations of, God, do we have to have another culture talk? Why are we talking about culture again? And it kind of sounds like we're, we're coming back to that. And I think part of that is going to be because we have a lot more new people coming in. So these culture topics are really, really important for these new people to basically get the understanding of how we want to try and be interacting and working with people in a more positive fashion than the way that we've worked with people in the past. So I think that's good that we have these conversations. 
they may not always be the easiest conversations to have because what they often look at and, and where I work, we kind of have this conversation in the, in the form that I don't think is always the most productive. Sorry, um, chef, <laughs> but it's usually around this idea of, uh, no assholes mm-hmm. and, you know, technologists, especially in the open source communities, there's, and, and DevOps really kind to kind of, um, models the open for better or worse and models open source communities in the way that things kind of operate because a lot of people are in the open source communities and that kind of is just how the devops community ends up kind of getting ran by default not intentional Uh, and open source has taught us a lot of how to run broader communities for good and for worse and one of the things that is always a trouble in the open source communities is this notion of assholes. And so we have at Chef this thing called the no asshole rule. And the problem is, is that it ends up turning into um, more of don't be an asshole instead of be awesome to each other, right? <laughs> and so when I opened DevOps Days Amsterdam, you know, we kind of touched on the code of conduct and the, the organizers wanted me to touch on it in a way that was don't do these bad behavior, don't do these bad behaviors do these things that are awesome to one another, right? So, you know, the Bill and Ted's thing of be awesome to one another. So mm-hmm. I think part of it is, is as we get new people in, we kind of have to have this conversation again about the culture aspects. But I also think that as the the movement kind of progresses, we find out ways uh, culture-wise of things that work and things that don't work. And one of the interesting things that have come up over the last kind of year and a half is this idea of empathy and, you know, really kind of putting your per- yourself in the other person's shoes. And this is something that I'm absolutely horrible at. Um, <laughs> you know, this whole idea of assuming positive intent is not my strong suit. And I have to kind of over and over and over again remind myself about this idea of uh, assuming positive intent and putting myself in the other person's shoes and the struggles that they're going through and all of those things. Um it's a different way to look at things, and I don't think that anybody had talked to, about it before in the past this way. So it's trying to reframe some of these issues that we've always had in a way that might create a more positive and productive conversation. I do think we have to be careful not, and we being the broader community, not to let these topics like overrun the conversations, like overrun the DevOps days and be too culture-focused. Me, again, being like someone that's so pro-culture, I, it, it was eye-opening to me when I had some, some people that are deep technologists that I feel are, are big into, into DevOps like come to me with that, that frustration. It was like, wow, it was a, it was a reflective moment, and, and I've actually tended to enjoy some of the culture talks just given how I'm wired, but I thought that would be something that would be interesting for us to talk through. And it sounds like maybe you're not doing the DevOps, do you see, if you're not very empathetic? given how much we hear about that. Well, I, I don't necessarily say that I'm I'm not doing DevOps. I think part of DevOps, and so this is the thing that everybody thinks that like DevOps is this end state, right? And DevOps is a journey. And I think we, we, we tell people this over and over and over again in the community is that you just don't do this one thing to do DevOps. You don't go buy a tool to do DevOps. You don't, you know, you can't go to CA and buy the enterprise DevOps tool suite. You you have to have this journey, right, to where you're kind of discovering yourself and trying to make yourself better. And not only yourself, by yourself, I mean, you know, like your organization that you work for and the culture that you work in and, and all of those things. So the first step is being aware that you have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think I've heard this before. <laughs> yeah, I think I think when we had this conversation in the past, maybe. <laughs> and then you need to actually go and actually try and fix that problem. So I think part of it is is just kind of reminding yourself of the behaviors that you need to have, which is good, right? Um, nobody's ever going to be perfect at it, but if we can get better at it, I think that's the spirit is what we're yeah. going for in the DevOps community. But I think going back to this whole sad ops thing. I think it'll pass. I, I, what I would tell people is is to kind of wait it out because it's gonna it's gonna shift back into the you know these things are cyclical. We need to have this conversation right now because we have a whole horde of new people coming in, 
And then that set of new people will want to go and talk about something else. And then the, everything will shift. And then in three years, we're going to have this conversation again where somebody's like, God, we're talking about culture again, right? <laughs> Brian, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, as you were talking, I was thinking of some things. And, you know, I'm somewhat newer to this space than I think either of you are. And the, the culture side of it, I do find very interesting. And I, I found myself in, in my position stopping and thinking about, you know, getting empathy for our, our customers and our clients a bit more than, than I would have in the past. So, I, you know, I have found it to be, to be helpful. So, Brian, um, since we've, we've kind of already introduced you, why don't you take a moment to kind of introduce yourself um, you're Brian O'Connell. You work for IBM. We've kind of got that mu that much information, but why don't you introduce yourself a bit more to our listeners? Sure. Yeah. Once again, I'm I'm Brian O'Connell. I'm a software engineer at IBM, where I focus primarily on cloud computing and DevOps. I've been working at IBM since 2001, and almost always in that time frame, focused on infrastructure development. Essentially, our team is really best known for providing the cloud platform that delivers um, US Open, golf and tennis, the Masters, the Tony Awards, Australian Open, French Open, and Wimbledon. But more generally, uh, we provide what we sort of call, you know, best in class web and application hosting services over a multi-active cloud, which in our focus is very is on continuous availability so really for business critical workloads um, that require you know continuous global availability and zero maintenance brian how did you get introduced to to devops and just why in your tenure at ibm so I, I would actually say that my my journey in the devops was an accidental one i was uh, attending an ibm conference and this was about two years ago and the lead of an IBM product, and the product was um, IBM Cloud Orchestrator, was talking about that they added Chef integration to the latest release. And people in the room seemed very excited about that. And I didn't know what it was. <laughs> and so I thought, I need to look at this and kind of figure out, you know, what this is. And, you know, the more I sort of looked at it, We'd had a member, uh, we've been around for a long time. So we've been around since, um, you know, we were formed for the uh, Nagano 98 Olympic Games. And we did the 2000 Sydney Games. So we've been around for a long time. And we had some homegrown tools, you know, something that we called Config Tool. And it was Perl-based. And it followed some of the same principles that you see in the open source configuration management tools like Chef and Puppet. But it was really limited in scope compared to what you get from those other tools. So for us, really formal configuration management was like a gateway into uh, you know deeper and deeper DevOps lifestyle, I guess you'd call it. And it for me changed the way that I viewed infrastructure. You know, I started going down this path of treating infrastructure as code and you know working on having a, a single release pipeline for everything that goes into our cloud. But yeah, so that's that's how we started the journey. I attended a conference and heard about something and been going since then. So I think everything has been written in Perl at least once, if not twice, <laughs> right? So I'm not surprised that there's a configuration management tool written in Perl. So IBM is, is really kind of seen as, and they're kind of changing their image from what I can see in some ways, but they're really kind of a traditional conservative company. And as you know, this was a couple of years ago, as you said, as you kind of got into this world of DevOps and, and automation, what were kind of the challenges that you faced is trying to get people to approach things from a more DevOps perspective in such a traditional world? Yeah, I mean, so I, I can't I can't really speak for IBM as a whole, but, you know, only from my, my personal experiences. Um, and, you know, where I was, our culture in our organization was not one that really feared new things working on these large sporting events that we do um we have new things all the time and they want them moved out there as fast as possible and where we are we also kind of live in this world where where deadlines can't slip you know if i'm not ready for the u.s open it turns out they're going to have it anyway <laughs> so um you know they're not going to move it for us so we really had 
sort of a culture, you know, where I was that was, you know, conducive to DevOps. And, and like I said, you know, we had done some of our own internal tooling you know, that was nowhere near the scale of the open source stuff. But we were, you know, so we, 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 were, we were not at a state where everyone was sort of logging into a machine and always making manual changes and, and nothing was, was synced everywhere. But we certainly were not at the formal level that, that I think we are now. And then, you know, also what I'm seeing is our internal customers are also pushing DevOps as well because they want to move faster too. So we really haven't had a lot of resistance to the idea of, you know, DevOps. I don't know if it's because only been looking at it, you know, the formal DevOps stuff in the past two years or um, if it's just the culture of where I am. Yeah, and by the way, the you know the way I kind of phrased that question, I didn't necessarily mean uh, your division. Obviously, IBM's a huge company. Uh, I work with somebody who used to work for IBM, but this was way, way, you know, maybe um, 2002, 2003 era. So you know, 10, 12 years ago, and you know, the culture in some of the divisions were very. Um, what we would call stodgy enterprise, right? Mm -hmm. So there's there's definitely kind of for better or worse and incorrect or uh, correct, you know, there's there's some perception in some parts of the industry that IBM is is the stodgy company, and it's good to know that that's not necessarily the case in all of the divisions of IBM, <laughs> right? Yeah, and you know, where I did see some, I guess, some friction, and where I really think it maybe 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 sort of a, a mind shift or mindset shift that was needed. Um, you know, we, we've been doing, as I said, you know, had this team together for a long time, and we, you know, brought IBM.com, sort of the 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 portal, you know, the the, the main IBM.com page into our infrastructure, and we've actually had it live, up and running, with zero downtime since June of 2001. And so when you then take that and you move to this sort of mindset shift that DevOps, um, one thing that we did have to work through culturally was the idea of shifting some of the responsibility and our customers owning some of the responsibility for delivery. You know, we, we would have strict procedures about application deployments and handoffs. You know, a customer would test it in our test environment. We'd take it, we'd move it into pre-production. It would burn in for a period of time, and then we would coordinate that rollout to uh, production for the application. And in the DevOps world, you know that sort of shifts. And as you're trying to move quicker and quicker, and you know enterprises are doing this too, they want to put things out just as quick as as everyone else is. Um, you know, for us, that that was sort of a a mindset shift that some of the availability uh, onus is now on our our partners. I personally have worked in a traditional company, so I know I know what some of those cultural barriers can be. How did people get through that mindset shift when, when you've been used to delivering things in a certain way and you had your certain procedures and your processes, et cetera, and things were probably optimized for a different type of delivery model? Like like how did you how did you get the people through that that shift? Like how did people embrace that, even in the division you're in? Yeah, so I think the mindset shift can can be a little bit difficult, but sort of our, our partners and really the market forces that we're seeing are driving people to have to ship things into production faster. So to remain competitive, I think everyone understands that we we have to change. You know, we still need to provide continuous availability, um, but we need to get into a position where our partners can be pushing things out whenever they want to and as quickly as, as, as they want to. Who do you, like, where do you think that realization happened even within your own kind of scope of, of influence with, like, within your company? I mean, was that, was that a recognition you made being at, like, that conference you mentioned? Or is it, or is it you know, a boss of yours or something? You know, where did that kind of change spark from? So, you know, f from our side, the, the recognition was really on the configuration management side and the ability to scale things up very quickly and re repeatedly. And then, you know, from our partners, the people that are creating the applications, you know, they have different drivers, I think, that are pushing them to want to get things out as quickly as possible. And so, you know, this whole DevOps thing, it's us working with them, coming up with a, a solution, which, you know, we're not slowing them down. 
and we have you know reliable, repeatable, testable, versionable infrastructure for them to deploy on. What I find interesting is you essentially work in a services capacity. So by a services capacity, I mean you're um, probably not using the correct term, but uh, you're a service provider, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and what I've seen in these service provider type settings is such a reluctancy to change the way that they work because they have some sort of SLA that they have to deliver or they have to convince the service owners that they need to be able to give more control to the person who's actually deploying the application. And usually the response is, is, well, I can't give more control because if they break it, then I'm on the hook and they're going to find me. So what did you have to do to kind of overcome that friction? And did you have to kind of refine um, the conversations you have with your uh, 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 partners and say, this is what you're going to be able to do. This is what we're going to be able to guarantee. Or how did you kind of overcome that friction, I guess? Yeah, and that's, that's a good question. You, uh, I mean, it's a pretty boring answer, but you really just have to, have to talk to them, right? I think everyone sort of has the same goals here. You know, our SLA for the platform is 100% uptime. Um, and But our customers are still and partners are still being driven to, you know, push things as quickly as they can. So it's really just, you know, working with them to work through that friction and coming up with a solution that works for the both for both of us. So the partner in a way is essentially just the dev team and you just have to have the same conversations in the service provider type setting to have the conversation to say, hey, this is what we want to try and provide to you to make your job easier and we can still meet these guarantees. Is that essentially the conversation that happens? Because this is a conversation I hear over and over again, not only from the service provider side. So I work in business development. And so I talk to a lot of the global um, global ser- system integrators and service providers throughout the world. And then I also talk to big enterprises that have agreements with those big GSIs and service providers. And I was in London at one of uh, a major ener- energy company. And they said, well, how does DevOps work in a service provider fashion? Because we have all these SLAs with these service providers and we're never gonna be able to convince these service providers. And I told them, well, you just need to go have a conversation that this is what you wanna do. And you know what, they're trying to do the exact same thing. And they're like, ah, conversation, you know, they thought they, they didn't realize it was that simple, right? Mm-hmm. So, and it might be the way that we're structured in that we, we have a position on our team that we call a technical webmaster. And they're in charge of the end-to-end delivery for that customer. They're in that way, they're sort of a, a customer advocate. Um, and so the way that we're structured is that, you know, they work very closely with the customer, they understand their application, they understand their requirements, and then we can work closely with them to make sure that the, the infrastructure and the DevOps infrastructure is aligning to their needs. And so the way that we did this was intentional. We sort of came up with a date and we said on this date, um, you know, the test environment will be available for customers to board in a DevOps fashion, right? They can come in and they can deploy their applications to it, you know, using a sort of a push button thing to, to get it out there. And then we purposefully had no roadmap past that date. And what we said was that, you know, you're going to have this for your customers. They're going to come, you know, they're going to come to you. They're going to work with you. And you're going to gather the requirements for what do they need next. And we're going to have a single person then sort of, you know, all these tech customer advocates feed it into a single person and they help rank it in our backlog. And then from that, we develop the functionality they need because some of them might say, okay, the next most important thing is that I need to push to pre-production. Or someone else might say, my next most important thing is I need to not just deploy applications, but I need access to make, you know, database schema changes somehow. So that's how we structured it, was to get requirements from the people that were going to be on the platform rather than building a platform and saying, here it is. So this is really interesting. So two things that I heard you say there. So one... You have somebody who's kind of the liaison in the middle who acts, and and I would assume that that individual's goals, the technical webmaster, their goals are aligned or 
um, let me rephrase that, their reward structure is aligned accordingly to them being able to deliver for this service, right? And you don't need to answer that one way or the other. I assume that they have <laughs> they have reward structures that are put in place to drive the behavior, right? And that's what you really tend to have is, is sometimes this mismatch between what you want and how you reward people. Um, it's kind of, there's a, a good Harvard Business Review article on it from probably like the mid 90s that it's it's called um, Rewarding B While Hoping for A. And it kind of talks about how corporate reward structures are all messed up and people end up gaming the system and basically get their reward without producing the results that they want, that the company wants, right? Because the reward structure is messed up. And then the other really interesting thing that I heard you say was along the lines of um, you basically are building an MVP. You take the minimum viable product and you put it in to staging and then from there you basically do a build measure learn cycle so kind of leaning on the ideas of lean startup and some of the ideas that are talked about in lean enterprise as well which we talked about last time on the show and you basically you build it you measure seeing that the customer that that's what they actually want and then there are some learnings to determine what do we actually need to put into the product for the next iteration as we move along yeah that that that's exactly it you know we, we want to put sort of a a stake in the sand so they could see something and interact with something and then really iterate over the minimum viable product from there. So I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, I know we don't often talk about tech as much on this podcast as culture and some of the other aspects, but can you talk a little bit as you pivoted to more of these DevOps-based approaches, some of the tech decisions you made? And, and I'm I'm interested where you deviated from IBM technology and why, because I think that can be an interesting dynamic working inside a software company. Sure. You know, I think our technology stack is, I would say, for the most part, fairly standard if there is a standard technology stack for for people working in this space. So um, we have what we call a, a hybrid cloud approach. So we serve part of our workload on a public cloud. And for that, we use IBM SoftLayer. And then part of our workload is served off of our private cloud. And for that, we manage out the product, which is IBM Cloud Orchestrator, which is a product that sits on top of OpenStack and provides some enhancements to it. Um, for software installs, OS, and configuration management, um, we use Chef. Uh, for source control, we use Git. But hopefully by the end of this sprint, we will have our GitLab servers uh, pushed out into production. We use Packer for creating our images. You know, it lets us go from sort of a single source image and create our soft layer and OpenStack compatible images, as well as generate our Vagrant VMware and VirtualBox images for testing. Um, we use FPM and FPM Cookery to package all of our software. And then we use Jenkins as our build pipeline. Um, the only place that I've seen us sort of de deviate from what I sort of considered a fairly standard stack is um, in our tool chain is we use technology called Urban Code Deploy to manage deployments in our infrastructure. And for us, we uh, consider any sort of artifact to be a deployment. So that includes things like chef role changes, cookbook updates, and really all deployments flow through that tool. Um, and it lets us do some nice things that we couldn't do otherwise, like we're able to actually version our chef roles because um, we haven't made the move to policy files yet. So that's been a nice um, benefit we've gotten by going down that path. And I guess, you know, on the, the technology side, um, you know, we never have received any pressure to use a specific technology. Um, we have our own reference architecture. And when we deviate from it, you know, that's an exception. But using open source technology where it's the best fit has never has never been a problem for us. Moving away from uh, the technology stack, which I think is actually pretty interesting. It's interesting to kind of hear a lot of these technologies. Um, like there is in some ways a standard DevOps stack, right? <laughs> uh, from a, a tool set perspective. If now only Ross, you could come up with a, a standard culture stack and then we can just stop talking mm -hmm. about culture, right? Well, it'll be made up of introvers and empathy mm -hmm. And collaboration, goats. goats. Yeah, hmm. be good then. <laughs> Actually, I think there is a standard culture stack that you can kind of um, 
you can kind of start to build. And we kind of thought of it from, I kind of thought of this idea. I'm kind of taking a tangent, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. (laughs) But I really think it's this idea of looking at how building internal communities that begin to mirror kind of external communities um, is really how you start to change uh, organizations culturally in an organization. So kind of going back to our original topic that we opened the show with. But getting back to kind of our guest here. So these aren't low profile websites, right? These are massive websites. Uh, You sent an article over to us. So the Wimbledon site had a half a billion page views over two weeks. Uh, I haven't extrapolated that out. Ross, can you do the math real quick and times? What would that be? Um, <laughs> 13 billion page views in a year? Half a billion in two weeks? Yeah. yeah. 13 billion right. a year? So yeah. these these aren't small sites. And other really interesting things that you do on these sites are things like... Uh, I know you had like a ball tracker, right? So you could get instant data about the speed of uh, all of the, uh, I don't know, tennis terms. I guess it's a volley, maybe? (laughs) Or the speed of the serve and other things like Mm -hmm. that and where the balls are actually going on the, I was about to say pitch, but that's a football term, on the court. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so like a lot of data is being served up and these are really, really critical sites, right? If the site goes down, or doesn't perform, millions of people notice, Twitter's going to light up, Facebook is going to light up, everyone's going to get angry really, really fast. And so when you have these sites that are really, really mission critical, did that kind of drive the adoption towards DevOps? Or was that one of those things that kind of hindered the adoption of, of doing things differently? Or was it just boiled down to, we have dates and we have to meet them? For me, this was sort of one of the biggest things that we had to look at when we were adopting DevOps. So, you know, look at our team. We've been running websites for 14 years with, with no downtime. We, we don't take this sort of stuff lightly. You know, every architectural decision we make, we think about the impact it might have to availability and uptime. Every product we look at, we have to figure out how are we gonna make this run in multiple sites at, one, at the same time. And then if you go and you look at a typical spring slash summer for us we're essentially going back to back to back right so we have the french open usually the night the french open ends we have the tony awards that night the following week we have the u.s open golf tournament the day after that ends the wimbledon qualification tournament starts and that leads right up into wimbledon so that's a lot going on for a team in a very tight time frame and that's where things, I think, like DevOps and infrastructure as code can come into play. Uh, and the ability to let us sort of thoroughly test things so we can have more confidence when there's a lot of things going on at once is, is very, very helpful. Where we struggled was with the speed of execution. So these situations, um, they can be very, very high pressure. And sometimes a change needs to be made very quickly. And I can give you an example of um, this past year where we sort of, you know, we ran into an issue that we had to solve. All of our websites for all these sporting events, they reside in the same chef cookbook for us. And we're using roles to dictate how each uh, server is being provisioned. What that meant is that um, if someone wants to update something for, say, the French Open, then we're still needing to execute tests against all of the other sites. And at the same time, we were in the process of transitioning from one operating system to another. So we were running them in parallel. So every time we wanted to make a change to a web server, we had to spin up 14 VMs to test every single change before we pushed into production. So we walked into starting French Open this year and a single change was taking four hours. And you know, this was sort of not, not the DevOps that, that people were promised, I'll put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, something that would have taken us before 10 to 15 minutes in the past was now taking much longer. You know, so we got together, you know, we improved the recipes a bit, and we stopped sort of testing things that weren't live at the time, and we brought it down to 15 minutes. And then, Afterwards, we spent some time in the pipeline, and before we walked into Wimbledon, we had a system set up in our pipeline so that we had all the VMs you know, pre-spun, ready to go, and then any change that would come in 
we could test across all 14 virtual machines and I think it was under four minutes and get that change into production. So, you know, for us, it, it took a while to figure out where the pain points were going to be uh, and how it would impact us because we were used to making, you know, more rapid changes. And 30 minutes is too long for us. And certainly four hours is too long for us. And if you look at, you know, these events and these sports sites we're doing, depending on whether it's golf or tennis, they're, you know, only live in front of the world for, it could be four days or it could be two weeks, but really for them, every single second counts. So it's a, it's a high pressure situation brings something new like DevOps into. And I think you, you get, you get the wins by having the ability to test your infrastructure and feel much more confident about a change. But it took us a while to really build our, our pipeline so that we could move at the speed that we needed to. Prior to moving to, to DevOps, um, did you have other scenarios like that in the past where you had that much change and that many things that, that I mean, what, the scenario that I felt like you just laid out is there's a whole bunch of moving parts that are changing together. The benefit is we get this hopper, like we have, we have the ability to test this now and make sure that all these changes aren't going to break each other, but it slowed us down. It sounds like in the past you were able to move fast, but you probably didn't have the ability to validate or test those types of things. Did you have those types of scenarios in the past where, where you had that much change happening at once? So th those scenarios would be a little bit different because before we went to a production configuration management tool, you know, the web server configs were, were separate different files. They weren't sort of built up from a single template. So we didn't have the cross dependencies on each other. That, that were introduced when we moved to you know, a configuration management system. Now, the benefit, of course, is that all of these things are now working off the same master config, and you don't have to worry about the issue of, I made this change for one website, but I forgot to carry it forward to the others. Right? Mm -hmm. So there, there are some benefits, but the drawbacks were that you know, there was additional coordination needed, and then sort of the, the test time matrix really exploded on us in a way that we did not anticipate before we went to Jenkins and I was like, why is this test taking forever? Yeah, it's interesting because I, um, most people, you know, when you hear people tout the benefits of, of DevOps, most people kind of jump to the speed thing right away. Like we're just able to move faster mm -hmm. as an organization. We can deploy faster. We can deliver faster. And, and when you, when you really peel that back, like you, you get sustained speed because you, you've, you've built, consistency and quality into the way that you do your delivery work and which is absolutely what it sounds like you've done but it's interesting to hear you know you you kind of stress the benefits you got from that testing and and that ability to validate and, and kind of drive quality across those things but but it was interesting to hear speed actually initially became a you know it actually it, it reduced it's probably the first time i've heard that scenario so it's, it was intriguing to hear that but it sounds like you turned it around. You were able to get your speed. You were able to dig into that, improve, and get your speed to where you wanted it to be as well. Yeah, and I, and I, I certainly agree with what you're saying. But you know, some people who look at configuration management will say it's so much. I can just quickly log in this machine and change the permissions on this file. You know, versus building a recipe and and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think there's always that trade-off on absolute speed right now versus reliability. You know. Uh, being able to version things and having high confidence that it's going to work when it goes out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very interesting. So kind of looking at your journey to date, you know, what's one thing you would probably approach differently? And I guess probably that four-hour thing, right? <laughs> but if you have um, a different different thing, if you could do it again, like what, what mistake would you tell your younger self not to make? I think there are two. I'll, I'll give you two, sort of one, one technology-based and one process-based, my, my two biggest uh, lessons learned. On the technology side, and this really is for those people working in, in enterprises, you know, we, look, we run a lot of enterprise software. And my initial design was that we were not going to modify that software packaging at all before we installed it. So we would write some code to download these large binary objects, run the installation commands, um, perform various configuration tasks. And this ends up being a sort of one of our biggest architectural mistakes at first. You know, testing was taking forever. We, we had some products that 
it was a three gigabyte thing to install it. And then when you were done, it was a 3.6 gigabyte fix pack. And then when you were done running, it had installed like 200 megabytes to the system. And this was clogging up our build pipelines and, and things were taking forever. So once again, it was this, this, this feedback of, you know, things were supposed to be faster now, right? And in some ways they weren't, in some ways they were. And we also had to do a lot of LWRPs and go through a, sort of this big process to create, um, you know, reusable cookbooks for enterprise software that we were installing. So uh, just for the listeners who aren't aware, so LWRPs are essentially this uh, feature of Chef. And um, just to caveat, everyone knows I work for Chef, and I did not invite Brian on here because he's <laughs> such a great Chef advocate. I swear, he reached out to us and invited himself. Um, but essentially, it's an abstraction that you can create, much like if you would say a function in a programming language to basically, when you want to do something over and over again, uh, you can call the function instead of you know having a big uh, maybe command that you need to run. And the LWRP just kind of abstracts away the complexity. Yep, that's a very very good summary. So th that was really really hurting us, and we're spending a lot of time uh, coding these things. And we've just now switched to a simpler system. We're using an open source tool called FPM Cookery, and uh, FPM as well, to where we take a lot of these larger enterprise uh, products and convert them directly to an RPM. And so for us, this sort of speeds up our test time makes the cookbooks uh, simpler and results in a lot less LWRPs. So we still, you know, we still take those, those things and we still put them into source control and we still have them moving them into our build pipeline. So there's still sort of one way into our cloud architecture, but it made things a lot easier for us on sort of the big things that weren't available out there as RPM. So that's my sort of tip to the enterprise people. Uh, consider repackaging the software if it makes your life easier. And that's the FPM that Jordan Sissel yep. develops, right? Yep, yep. And then the FPM Cookery is a, um, a tool. I actually don't know who develops. It's an open source tool that lets you take a, they call it a recipe, to sort of describe how to take something from a source, or in our case, a binary run some commands, and then feed it to FPM so you get an RPM out when you're done. And so we sort of tie this into Vagrant, um, which you know abstracts away working with virtual machines to uh, spin up in our pipeline, package the software, and make a new RPM available. So we've, we found that to be very helpful. That's actually really interesting because that's one of the things that I think a lot of the people that I know who work in large enterprises run across is this you know, big monolithic installer for enterprise application and how do you actually work with it effectively in a kind of DevOps world where you're not building golden image and, uh, you know, you're trying to have things in a release pipeline and you can't have, you know, four gig software packages getting installed every single time. Yeah, that, that was what we ran into as, as well. And then on, on the process side, I sort of, I, I personally made a huge mistake when I was introducing um, the entire solution to a team at once. So I had gone off for a while and I'd learned a bunch of things about configuration management and, and DevOps and really the whole ecosystem. And along, around that sort of same time, the ecosystem started really maturing and a lot of tools sort of, sort of popped up and had gotten fairly complex. And this was also... You know, we're, we're, you know, we use Chef. So this is before Chef DK was released. So the conversation would go something like this. Um, I'd be like, hey, go to our wiki, follow these 18 steps to get your workstation working properly, learn how to use Git, you need to learn some Ruby, uh, figure out Test Kitchen, you know, spend like an hour downloading our, our test images, um, commit something to source control, log into all three Chef servers, Upload your cookbook changes, you know, make sure no one's stomping or changes at the same time. Then do a distributed SSH and push that out to all your impacted servers. And people were sort of like, I, I just wanted to change the permissions on this file. And this is um, supposed to be faster, <laughs> right? <laughs> so if, if I were to do it again, I would consider, you know, just have a single chef server, maybe even, if you're doing chef, maybe even have a, a monolithic repo 
to start and then sort of grow with your team into a more complex ecosystem as you hit the limits with the simple patterns. So I guess my advice is really to evolve as a team as, as you feel the pain rather than jumping into the best practices, even if they exist for a reason, um, because it's a lot, there's a lot of stuff out there. And if you hit everybody all at once, it can become overwhelming yeah. with, with, with how to do these things. So that was definitely a lesson that I learned. Yeah. And that's one thing that I see. And I, I know Ross has seen similar things in that, the way that you build success isn't by uh, trying to do this big bang, big bang approach, uh, but rather, you know, a big bang with a contained, like Adam Jacob, our CTO at Chef, likes to say, um, control the blast radius, but not the intensity of the blast. And when <laughs> you go out there and you try to get everybody on, you know, tool, whatever, whether it be Chef or whatever, and you have this complicated process for them to get involved in it, they're most likely probably not going to get involved in it, right? Uh, let's be honest, whether if it's Chef or an IBM product or Ansible or, you know, Jenkins or whatever, if you make it way too complicated for them from the get-go, um, adoption is, is, is likely going to suffer. Yeah, and I, and I will say things have certainly improved to the point where, you know, we, we for ourselves we built, uh, you know, a single curl bash that now sets up everyone's laptop exactly how it should be, gets the keys in the right places. We have a build pipeline, so all the servers get updated at the same time. Um, you know, we pushed all the moving things into production into our deployment tool. So things got better, but the initial sort of, here's all these tools, go learn, you know, go learn pages and pages of things at once to make, to make a simple change was, was uh, a tough learning experience. Especially if you're the person that's been tasked with or on their own has gone out to learn all this stuff. Just uh, keep in mind that maybe a small small wins can can help you out a lot. I had one more question. It kind of brings us back to earlier in the podcast. Your your comment you just made there, and um, around one person been tasked or gone on your own. Like back to that conference where you were at, where you know you you heard folks getting excited about some different tooling that was out there, et cetera. Like. Did you like? Did you personally like figure at that point where you like? I need to go figure this stuff out, or were, were you kind of chartered with it because you were in a kind of a DevOps oriented group? Yes. So the the culture I'm in is is very self directed. So I went and I learned about it and I brought it back to the team and we talked about it and we you know, we sort of figured out how this fit into our, our roadmap together. And then you know we went off and we did do some trials and we we learned a bunch of things. And then we sort of brought it back. Got it. Interesting. Sounds like you have a culture of, of continuous learning and one that actually encourages learning, right? Which is really, really important, we find. Yes, I would, I would definitely say that is true. It's, it's, you know, working in in the industry that we're in, you know, with these sporting events, there are, there are new things and new technologies all the time. So you, you need to be able and excited and ready to learn new things. So Brian, it's it's really great uh, to have you on, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners will really appreciate hearing uh, some of the ideas that are behind maybe some of their favorite sites. I myself am not a tennis fan, nor am I a fan of the Tonys, uh, so I don't know if I've actually been on one of your sites, but I remember I was in London recently during Wimbledon, and there's some pretty awesome um, um, watch areas set up around london where you could actually go and watch wimbledon and then they also have like um uh, the data from the websites that are actually put on different screens so you can actually see what's going on and that data is refreshed in real time which is actually pulled from your the sites that you actually run so it's actually really cool to see people who are actually enjoying uh something like that from a technology perspective and then talking to somebody who's actually went and built that or helped build that technology Cool. Yeah, it was it was great to talk to, to both of you. And uh, one thing we, we are also hiring, my team is hiring. So if, if you want to help work on DevOps for cool sporting events and other things at web scale, I think we'll have a link in the show notes. So, you know, please, please apply if you're interested. Cool. We will put that link in the show notes. So, Brian, how can people get a hold of you if they want to reach out maybe about the job uh, or in uh, ask you more about how you actually run things at IBM. Sure. The, the best way to reach me is with my Twitter handle, which is BOC or, or Bach and then underscore to the future. 
Yep, and as always, we'll put a link to that on the show page as well. Uh, so what, 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 what's, uh, what's behind the Twitter handle? Uh, so it's my, my, my IBM ID is, is BOC, which is close to Bach, because my name is Brian O'Connell, so whatever algorithm they use came up with that. Bach so to the future. Bach, and so Bach to the future is a nice little, nice little pun. My, my wife actually helped me come up with that Twitter handle. So if you think <laughs> it's clever, all, all the praise goes to her, not me. <laughs> well, mine's way less clever. I know Ducey was about to ask me about that. I was about to ask you that. <laughs> you finally figured out this show. <laughs> yeah, so folks can get a hold of me at, at Ross Clanton, just like it sounds pretty easy. And as always, you can get a hold of us at the podcast on Twitter at GoatCan. Um, I myself, you can get a hold of me at MFDII, Michael Francis Ducey II. That is uh, what my stand, mine stands for. Uh, don't ever call me Francis, <laughs> which is another movie reference, right? <laughs> uh, I'll let our listeners figure out what movie that's from. Uh, as always, Ross, thanks for helping out. Thanks for co-hosting with me, as always. Are we counting? No, I was expecting you to say thank you. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Oh, happy, yeah. happy to be on or whatever. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> I, it's awesome to be on this podcast. And Brad, thank you for being on. It was fun to hear about what you guys have been doing there. And it's cool to see, uh, it's cool to see you know, big, big software companies working to change, too. So, yep. Thanks to both of you. It was, it was a lot of fun. Thanks, Ducey, for being such an awesome host, as always, and all the great editing work I'm sure you'll be doing. Yes. So, as always, remember, be, be the, the goat. goat. <laughs> I actually think we nailed it that time.